been wanting to make note of this for a while, and I remembered now, so I'm going to. Um, I would really encourage, I'd like to encourage us as a church to, if you're on the email distribution, you know often when the sermon teaser comes out, if you're on the Facebook page, you see that. I would like to encourage us as a church, when we see the text, to spend some time during the week reading it through, and Sunday morning, opening it up and directing our attentions to it. I think if we do that, you'll find that the message will resonate all that much more, because you'll be more familiar with what we're looking at. So if you have time to do that, I'd encourage you to do so. We all have time to do that, so I'd encourage you to do so. So, all right, that's all. Uh, Let's pray as we go to uh, this text this morning. Lord, we ask again that you would help us. Be our teacher, be our guide through your spirit. Father, help us to see you as you are, glorious, wonderful, and worthy of all of our adoration and praise. Father, I pray for the one here today who is struggling, whether that be a marriage, whether that be with family, coworkers, or health, you name it. Father, help them to see that you are a God who is always with us and a God who is for us because of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us on the cross. Lord, help us to see the grace that's in this text. Help the fear of who you are drive us to a love of your glory and seeing you as you are. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. When it comes to hide and seek, toddlers are by far, hands down, the absolute champions of hide and seek. They are. They really are. I've got a toddler. I know. Ian is very good at hide and seek. For how they hide is mischievously. They hide in ways that are so clever, we as parents could never find them unless they revealed where they were. For instance, they find all sorts of creative places to hide in which the naked eye cannot possibly even detect them. For instance, like underneath tables. Sometimes they will use their clever camouflage skills to hide in plain sight in ways that will make them indistinguishable from even everyday house objects. For example, what do you see here? Throwaway rug, you say? Would you believe me if I told you that's actually a child hiding in disguise? Amazing. Sometimes they will even hide as everyday house pets who have learned to bend the laws of physics in ways not possible. Sometimes as a lamp, sometimes as laundry, sometimes in cupboards where you cannot possibly see them or know they were there, behind curtains, under buckets, and under sheets. But no matter where or how they hide, they are almost impossible to spot because they are so remarkably good at hide-and-seek. I'm going somewhere with this. Just hold on. Finding one of these excellent hiders is equivalent to finding Waldo, a four-leaf clover, or even a silver dollar bill. When you do, you should cherish it. Now, why are we talking about hide-and-seek? Why is this so funny to us? Well, isn't it because the opposite is true? I know many of you can see right through my sarcasm here, because the truth is kids are not very good at hide-and-go-seek. 
even though they think their cleverly devised hiding spots are so brilliant at hiding them from their parents. The reality is, though, it doesn't hide them at all. I can see you. Your feet are right there. I see your head popping through the sheets, we think. This isn't working even a little bit. And in fact, their hiding places, I don't know if you noticed, they actually seem to draw more attention to them than they would have if they had been just standing there doing nothing. Which means all of their efforts to hide from their parents are nothing but a futile waste of energy. When it comes to cosmic hide-and-seek, though we try so very hard to hide from God, the truth is we are often in our hiding from God just as silly as these little toddlers, are we not? In fact, I would say we're more silly. Because some of the ways we try to hide from God in our cosmic hide-and-go-seek makes the toddlers look like geniuses by comparison. Have you ever heard someone say, can't talk that way at church, Mm -mm. don't do that. It's cosmic hide-and-go-seek. God doesn't hear us outside of these four walls. Is that how that works? No, of course not. Not even a little bit. That's toddler thinking. Hiding our sin from God by hiding it from others. Does that work to hide it from God? Putting on a mask, showing up at church, acting like I have everything all together. I'm this strong Christian who is just valiantly living my faith when the reality is, couldn't be further from the truth. Is that hide-and-go-seek game we play with each other not an attempt to play the cosmic hide-and-seek with God? He sees right through that. Of course he does. See, church, when it comes to toddlers hiding from their parents in their silly, easy-to-spot ways, make no mistake, as God's children, it's infinitely more silly the ways that we try to hide and disguise ourselves from him. And this leads us right to our passage this morning in Psalm 139. And in this passage, we're going to see three truths about our cosmic hide-and-go-seek game. And here's what they are. When it comes to God's presence... When it comes to cosmic hide-and-go-seek, one, we cannot hide from him, two, we want to hide from him, and three, we must not try to hide from him. Let's look at this first point. We cannot hide from him. As we said before, the reason we're in Psalm 139 this morning primarily and not Matthew 6 is because this is actually the prequel in a lot of ways to the truths that we're looking at in Matthew 6. And Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we will be looking at what Jesus teaches about giving, about prayer and fasting, and how all of these activities are not to be done for any audience but God. It's to be for an audience of one. And that's the big idea that we find here in Psalm 139. It's all about a God who we cannot possibly hide from. Not even a little bit. And why not? Because this God is omniscient. What does omniscient mean? It means he knows everything. He knows the words I'm going to say even before I do. That's really, really knowing, okay? He knows a lot. And God is also omnipresent. What does that mean? It means he is all-present everywhere at all times. You can't go pick up a rock or go into a cave and be like, I found a spot that God's not aware of. It's not possible. And so there is simply no way at all then that we can hide from this kind of a God. We cannot do it. And how foolish and silly it is to think that we can do so. We cannot get away from him any more than we could escape our own shadow. 
Do you realize how different our God is from all the pagan gods, fake gods? Okay? Think about all the Greek gods. You had a God of lightning. You had a God of the sea. A God of death and hates. But none of them come even close to Yahweh God, do they? For as Psalm 135 says, Who is like our God, who is enthroned on high? Our God is no small God, right? For we serve a God who knows, as the psalmist says in this text, when I sit down and when I stand up. He knows my thoughts and my paths, as verse 3 says. He knows the words that are going to come out of my tongue even before I do, as verse 4 says. That's not a God that we can hide from. This is a God who is not bound by time or space. See, God is not like you and me. He's not bound to space and even time. That's not even something we can comprehend. But he's not. He's not bound by time. You think of like a river with a bunch of boats going down it. God's up at the mountaintop looking down, seeing all of it at once. He is fully outside of that process. Right? This is the kind of God that we serve. He is eternal. He is immortal. He is invisible, infinite, and transcendent. Does it sound like the kind of God you can hide from? Not even a little bit. Which is why David writes in verse 7, where can I go to flee from your spirit? And what's the implied answer there? Nowhere. There's not a single place we can go to flee from God. Now look, we aren't talking about some pantheistic God, and no, that word has nothing to do with panthers. What is pantheism? Pantheism is the belief that equates the universe with God. All right, What is God? He's in everything. He's in this podium right here. He's in this Spotlight remote, right? He's in the guitar over there. He's in you and me. That's what God is. He's in everything. That's all it is. God is everything. I'm God. You're God. Everything's God. No, that's not the God of the Bible. Not even close. The God of the Bible is transcendent. He's outside of his creation, but he is still everywhere. Okay? And if you can figure that one out, you need to write a book because you'll be the first one to understand that. See, God isn't in all the creation. He's all at once, not a part of it, but completely distinct from it, but also everywhere within it. Now, before we move on from here, look at the last word of verse 7. I encourage you, if you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 139. We're going to be going through these verses systematically. It's the word presence. You see that? Look at verse 7, Psalm 139. Look at the last word. It's the word presence. This is an important word. Why? Because it's actually, if you translate it directly from the Hebrew, it's the word for face. Which means the psalmist, you know what he's really saying? He's saying, where can I go to hide from your face, O God? The answer is nowhere. All right? And this is really where I want us to stop for a minute and really think about this and plant our flag here for a second this morning. All right? We need to understand this, that everything we do is before the face of Almighty God. It's before the face of a holy God, which is a problem because we're sinners. And the reality is, if everything we do is before the face of a holy God, shouldn't that impact the way we live as the children of God? Absolutely it should. Because this means that gossip between two believers is always not done just with them two alone. It's always before the face of God. This means that the way you speak 
to your spouse, your children, your friends, your coworkers, the people online, is always done before the face of Almighty God. It's always heard by His ears and seen by His eyes. This means that even if you wipe your web browser's history, it didn't wipe it from His eyes. He knows exactly everything that we are doing, everything that we are looking at. And if we really understood this truth as the children of God, and if it really sank down into the depths of our soul, do you have any idea how radically this would change the way we live? Think about it for a minute. I spent, I spent a large part of the week thinking about this, so you've got to do it in like 10 seconds. Think about it, though. That would drastically change the way I talk to people, the way I choose the activities I would engage in. Drastically. It absolutely would. We've said this before. When you're in a nasty disagreement with you know, a family member or your spouse, right, and you're getting mad, and you're like, oh, you just make me so angry, right? And you're talking in ways you shouldn't. The phone rings, somebody knocks at the door. What happens? Oh, hey, how's it going? Right? Boom. What happened there? The presence of somebody else showing up changed our behavior. And so how true, even more so, should it be realizing that we are standing not before my neighbor, not before a friend, but before a holy, all-powerful God? It should absolutely change the way that we live. And this is the point that Jesus is kind of alluding and getting to in chapter 6. It absolutely is. Matthew 6.1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And why should we not practice our righteousness for the eyes of others? Because they are to be done for the eyes of one. The one eyes that are always looking, ever seen, for they are the eyes of the face of an omnipresent God. An omniscient God. And then in Matthew 6, 2-4, through 4, which Lord William will look at next week, says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and that your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. All of our things we do, even the good things we do, we can twist that into trying to put a performance on for an audience that's not God. And we shouldn't do that. And in verse 7 and 16, Jesus goes on to make the same point about prayer and fasting, which are not to be done for the audience of others, but for the audience of God and God alone. This is something we really struggle with, right? You don't think so. Look a little closer. It, you absolutely do, but you're not thinking about it seriously enough. Well, the, see, the natural bent of the human heart is to do everything for the audience of one. And who's that audience I do everything for? Myself. Absolutely right. It's myself. And why? Because of mistaken omnipresence. All right? And that works two ways. One, I, mis- I misunderstand omnipresent, and I think, you know what? Who's the one person who is with me from the cradle to the grave, from the womb to the grave even, besides, like, human being, not talking about God. Who is it? Myself. I'm everywhere I've ever been, right? That's, that's how it is. We have mistaken omnipresent. And so we do everything for that one person that we know is omnipresent everywhere we go, and that's ourselves. 
And the reality is there's somebody infinitely greater than ourselves who's always present, not just with us, but with everyone, everywhere, at all times, in all places. It's God. As the psalmist points out to us, there is a true, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing God whose face is everywhere. Not his shadow, not his elbow, his face is there, everywhere, with us, where we go, always. And yet, do we, what do we then do in response to this reality? Well, we suppress it, we try to hide from it, like the little silly toddlers that we are. Which leads us to our second point. When it comes to God, we cannot hide from him, for he is everywhere, he is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful. But secondly, we desire to hide from him. What is David's initial response in this text to the all-present and all-knowing God that he's speaking of? Is his initial response, yes, this is great, awesome. No, it's how do I get out? How do I get away from him? Where do I go? This is, this is all up in my business. I don't like it. That's his initial response. In verse 6, he says, what? This knowledge is too much for me. And in the English, if we're not careful, we read this and we're like, oh, look at David. He's so excited. This is, he's like, this is too much. This is awesome. This is unbelievable. You know, that, that kind of language. No, it's not. That's not the language David's using. He's like, I don't like this. This is an encringement upon my sovereign life choices, upon my individual liberty. And the reality is, what crazy person would read this text, a holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God, and naturally think, oh, that's great. Mm-mm. No, that's not great. Not at all for sinners like us. You'd be a madman to think so. This is a God who knows all of our thoughts. He knows every single one of my thoughts. Like, all of them. That's terrifying. It should be for you as well. See, we're the kind of people, like, I don't know about you, but I don't even like Google Maps having a picture of my house. Right? I, don't, I think Facebook and Google are bad, you know? But this is a God who knows all of my thoughts. He sees everything that I do. He makes the NSA look like they're blind. <laughs> every single thing we think about Every single thing we've done, it's before his face. See, the default state of the human heart hates this. It despises this omnipresent, all-knowing, all-holy God. Don't don't delude yourself into thinking otherwise. Our hearts hate that, all right? We don't like it even a little bit. It's the default state of the human heart then to, out of this hatred of this God, to respond with spiritual claustrophobia. To say, get back. That's precisely what David does in verse 5. What does he say? You hem me in. It's like, ah. Well, what does hem mean? That word hem means to confine, to bind, or besiege. And so what do we do in response to this hemming? Well, we pull a Jonah. We try to run and hide from God. That's the default state of all of us. That is what we come into this world doing. That's what we understand. That's how we all respond to God. No one seeks after God. That includes you. That includes me. That includes everyone. We all have a Jonah mentality when it comes to seeing God for who he is, the all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing God, and we run from him. 
And the really silly part of this is that like toddlers, we convince ourselves that we're actually succeeding in our hiding. We're not. Right? I can see your toes. Like, you're not fooling anybody. That lampshade on your head, no. And we do that as a, as a, at a cosmic level. We convince ourselves that when we sin, maybe God's not looking. Maybe he doesn't care. He's not really interested so much in that sin. You know, everybody sins, no big deal. You know, that kind of a thing. Like, relax. God doesn't care about who I sleep with. God doesn't care about what I watch or what I listen to. Like, lighten up. His face really isn't upon all of his creation. You know what that is? That kind of thinking, you know what that is? Practical atheism. Practical atheism. It really is. See, most people can't convince themselves there is no God. Right? That's why statistically you look at people who are self-professing atheists, it's very low. Right? Because they have a problem, which is that the heavens, which is the skies, are constantly shouting out God's glory. So it's very hard to deny that this world was created. All right? And since we can't cover that up very well, We believe that, but what we do is we tone it down like the Pharisees did, as we've seen all through chapter 5. We tone this God down to a level that we can handle. We we bring him down a notch or two, and we do so by convincing ourselves that God doesn't see us, or if he does, he doesn't really care about all these little religious behaviors, these moral behaviors. He just doesn't, come on, really? That's petty. Right? That's the way we think, especially as Westerners. All right? But he does care greatly. His face is upon all of creation. All right? And in our hearts, we naturally hate that. Why? Because our hearts in our sin-fallen human state do not want to be hemmed in. We don't want it. We want freedom. Our hearts, all of ours, have a cosmic authority problem. There's an atheist professor, his name's Thomas Nagel, and I love this man's brutal honesty. Here's what he says about this issue. He says, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. That's the cry of every human heart. It does not want to be hemmed in. Not by the actual God. We'll allow the hemming in of a God we've made in our own image. I can handle that God. Bring him down to here. You know, he'll, be, he'll care about the things I care about. He'll like the things I like. He'll approve of the things that I do and disapprove of the things that I disapprove of. That's great. I can handle that God, but not this God. Not the real God. Not the one who says, I will by no means spare the guilty, which includes all of us. And so ever since the Garden of Eden, our hearts hate God's hemming upon us, and it has demanded absolute autonomy and individual freedom in order to decide for ourselves how our life should go, what makes us happy. But here's the cruel joke when it comes to this thinking. It's a cruel joke, right? It doesn't actually bring us happiness. It doesn't actually bring us true and lasting joy. In fact, it leads to a miserable existence. For as created beings, we cannot assign meaning to our lives 
any more than a fish could suddenly decide to enjoy its wonderful life outside of the confines of water. This is something that is radically unfolding before our eyes in new creative hellish ways almost every day in our culture, isn't it? People who feel sexually hemmed in by God, right? And so they take an entire month out of the year to celebrate their freedom from that being hemmed in. Which is sad because what they do in order to try to hide themselves from his face, they wrap themselves in rainbow-colored flags, which is mind-boggling, ironic, and sad at the same time. For what are they doing? They're playing cosmic hide-and-seek by trying to literally hide themselves in a symbol that is meant to remind us that God will not ever judge the world again with water, though what that same God tells us is he will one day judge the world with a baptism of fire. The truth is, happiness and joy can only be found in God, our Creator, who has created us for a specific purpose. What is that purpose? We exist for the glory of God, period, full stop. You do not exist for sexual fulfillment. You do not exist for idolatrous gain. You exist for the glory of God, that's it. But remarkably, that's not, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. That actually is the only thing. Living for the glory of God is the only way that you will find satisfaction and true happiness in your life. Because until you do, you're going to be trying to live for false gods, for fake gods. And so we must live for the true God in His glory. This truth makes the human heart very uncomfortable and actually furiously, murderously angry. It does not like to feel hemmed in. And so what do we do? We look for created things to satisfy the longings of our heart, whether that be the approving nods of one another, as Jesus addressed in Matthew 6, our jobs, our careers, financial gain, you name it. The point is, though, these are all inferior gods meant to hide ourselves from the face of the one true and living God which we cannot possibly do any more than a toddler can put a lamp on their head and not be found. We're all doing that. We're all looking around in this world, looking for lamps, looking for blankets to throw over ourselves to hide ourselves from his presence. And so we must not do so. We must not try to hide from God at all. It's impossible. We cannot do it. And so this is why, church, when we go out into the community and maybe we're involved in public schools and they are pushing what is being pushed right now in the month of June, we don't say, oh, you're just an evil, terrible person. No, we point out to them, listen to me. What you are looking for, where you are looking for joy and happiness will not bring it. You will not find joy and happiness in your rebellion, in your sexuality. You will not do it. God has made them male and female from the beginning. That's the way it is. Marriages between one man, one woman, that's the way it is. That's the way God created it to be. And so when we go to people, to the lost world, who has embraced this chaos, right, of their insane hide-and-go-seek, we don't go to them with self-righteous indignation. We go to them lovingly and say, 
You are trying to find joy and peace in chaos, and you cannot find it. It is Christ or chaos, as one prominent pastor often puts it, and that is the reality. And that's the reality for us as well, even as God's children. It is Christ or chaos. And the truth is, when it comes to God's presence, we cannot hide from him. We, we want to hide from him. But third, we must not chase the chaos and we must not try to hide from him and embrace him, which leads us to our third point. What is it that led David to go from being hemmed in by God and hating it to delighting in said hemming from God? Make sense? My question. What led him from hating God's hemming to loving it? What was it? Look at verses 13 through 18. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! What changed David's dread into delight was knowing that the God who is all-powerful in all places and knows all things is also a God whose face is always before all of his creation in delight, who's intricately consumed and involved with his creation. He's not indifferent to it. It's a God who cares about his creation. And how much so does this God care about his creation? A lot so. So much so, in fact, that it's more than you and I can possibly even fathom. All right? This is a God who is so, whose face is so before his creation, who cares so much about his creation, he knitted you together in your mother's womb. God saw your unformed substance. And you know what? This same God who exists entirely outside of time also happens to be completely all-powerful and all-sovereign, so much so that he planned the days of your life in a book. And when David sees that, it causes his heart to cry out, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Our entire bodies, made up of the incountable numerous cells that are ridiculously complex, and we find out more and more and more every single day just how complex these cells are. This is made by an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God who happens to be an all-loving God too. It's remarkable. And out of this God's great love, what does he do? He upholds the universe by the power of his might. It would spin out into chaos entirely if he didn't. Which means every fiber of your being, your body and your soul, it was forged and fashioned by God for God. We belong entirely to him. Our hearts are not our own. And so, of course, his face upon all creation at all times is scary, but it ought not be. All right? For his face being upon all creation at all times and all places is his sovereign right. It makes no difference if you're a fetus in the womb or a senior citizen in a chair, which is why we as God's people have always stood opposed to both abortion and euthanasia. It's not our prerogative 
to step upon the throne of God and start tearing pages out of his book? No. He is sovereign, not us. He is the one who makes us. He is the one whose face is upon us, the one who made us, which is why David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You see why and how then that it is such a terrible thing to respond to this God's hemming with hatred, contempt, or disinterest? It's not just a mistake, all right? It's not just ignorance. It is that, but it's not just that. What it is, is it's wicked. It's unjust. It's cruel. It's evil and sinful. And so David realizes this. He goes from fearing and hating this hemming in to seeing the delight in it to then responding with what? We talked about this last week, with perfect hatred towards the enemies of God who take God's name in vain. Do you take God's name in vain? I'm not just talking about OMG emoticons and all that kind of stuff, which you certainly shouldn't use, but do you take God's name in vain with the way that you live your life? Have you twisted and warped God's name into a hideous image of yourself, making a God who cares about the things you care about and loves the things that you love? The Bible calls that idolatry. It's a very serious thing. And here's what Revelation 21.8 says about idolaters. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns the sulfur, which is the second death. When you come to see the preciousness of God that David is describing here in verse 17, you write, it is right for you then to hate to see the way that God is treated by his creation. You hate to see sinners speak against God with malicious intent. You hate to see God's name taken in vain. You you hate to see people rise up against the Lord God, who is the God of the universe, and you then begin to hate evil with perfect hatred and long for the day of the Lord when perfect judgment will rain down upon this world. However, if you have any self-awareness at all, you realize there's just one problem with that which is that all of us are guilty. Every single one of us has done these things towards God. And so we are all deserving of the perfect judgment of this holy God. And one day, make no mistake, very soon this judgment day is coming. And this judgment will be given out. And how will this judgment be given out? By the face of God who will one day Shine his face upon the world in judgment. Revelation 15, 6, 15 through 17 tells us about this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, what did they do? Hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? One day, David's prayer in verse 19 for God to slay the wicked will be answered. It will be answered by David's greatest son and through him, Jesus Christ, who will return in power and in glory and in judgment. But today is not that day. 
And so until that day, we must all respond as David did in verse 23, not with self-righteous indignation and anger, but with an appeal to the mercy of God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And what? And lead me in the way of everlasting. In verse 11 and 12, David writes about the darkness of death covering him and how on that day his light will turn to dark. But he talks about how with God, even the darkness is not dark. Did you notice that in the text? Right? The night is with God, what? As bright as day. For darkness is as light with God. And why? For one reason. Because upon the cross... Jesus, the son of David, had his day turned into night, both literally and spiritually before God, as he faced the darkness of God's fury and wrath full on, right? He faced the darkness and fury. He faced it before the face of God. The the wrath and anger of God was upon him, the kind of wrath and anger that we're looking at in that passage on Revelation, which is one day coming soon. And Christ faced the darkness of God's fury and wrath. Why? So that by God's grace, we could one day see the face of God and live. Right? That's why. And that's exactly what David is alluding to in verse 18 here when he says, I awake and I am still with you. Similarly, in another psalm, Psalm 17, David writes this. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. What's David talking about? Talking about a nap? Waking up from a nap and everything's all good? No. Talking about death. He will go through death, through sleep. He will awake and one day, by the grace of God, because of the Son of God and His work upon the cross, what will happen? He will awake He shall see the face of God and be satisfied by the face of God. Did the people in Revelation look like they were satisfied by the face of God? No. They wanted the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and crush them. They wanted to hide from God, which is, as we said, the default state of all of our hearts. But by the grace of God, when we see His great and wonderful nature, We can go from fearing God to loving Him with full delight, which is the only way that brings happiness and joy to our lives. And so may we be a church that lives in this ever-present, ever-knowing face of God as we eagerly await beholding His righteous face. Father, this is such a rich text. So, Lord, I ask that you would work through the foolishness of preaching this morning. That you would change hearts through it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help your people, Lord. Help us to see that you see all. That you are all. You are all in all. Help us to not reel back from who you are. But help us to become like David who found how to delight in who you are. We know that that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not in our own works, not in our self-righteous 
morality and our religion and our legalism, none of that, purely comes from you by grace. So, Father, help us to live in that reality. Help us to fight sin. Help us to mortify the flesh. <clears throat> help us to do so by our love for you, realizing that your eyes are always before us. Your face sees all we do. It knows every dime that we spend our money on. It knows every hour that we invest our time in. Our time is limited. We don't have an infinite amount of it. And so we ask that you would help us to invest it wisely. And so, Lord, as we approach the Lord's table here in a moment, help our prayer to be that of Psalm 139. In verse 23 and 24, where you said, where David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. And so by your grace, Lord, we are trusting in you to lead us into the everlasting. And we'll give you all the praise, all the glory, and the honor for it. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song this morning? We had our songs all lined up and ready for